So, we are on Wednesday evenings, for the time being, going to be continuing the series that we were in in the mornings prior to getting back into Matthew, and that's the glory of God in the church. The glory of God in the church. Those four weeks I think we did on Sunday mornings were really big picture, kind of bringing us into the idea of the glory of God, the idea of the church, the idea of the glory of God in the church. And now we're going to basically get into the weeds a little bit. We started this actually last Sunday evening. Um, So before we start, kids, you've all got a piece of paper, and it's got what on the piece of paper? Tell the adults. A church. A church. But what? Is it a building? Right? It's a building. But did you know that— Okay. Well, here's what I want you kids to understand. That when the Bible talks about the church, they're not actually talking about a building. But the people who come together and go into the building. Right? Um, So, is anybody called the church, kids? Or is it somebody specific? Right, and what is specific about the people who we call the church? What ties them all together? Jesus, right, good job. Those who follow Jesus, they come together and they are the church. So then, adults, this kind of leads us into this question. Is Does that mean the church can be someone who's standing by themselves? Uh Maybe in the deer woods on Sunday morning? Can they call themselves the church? Or does it take two or three to be gathered? What makes a church? Does a church need a pastor? How does What makes a church a church? Of course, we've talked a, a lot about this um, as far as the true marks of a church. Uh, we'll touch on that again here in a second. Um, well. In our series, again, we're going to be looking at what God has revealed to the church about the church in order to do what he's called them to do. So God's revealed himself. This was sort of a summary of what we looked at. God has revealed himself and called to himself a group of people whom we call the church, and he's done that through Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We possess, the church possesses the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now you think about that. Think about all the things that you possess. I just said that you as a Christian and we as a church possess the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our greatest possession. So this series, what we're going to be doing now is, so what do we do with that? Right? What is our purpose of having that, of knowing that? Uh, so the, the word that we will use, not very often, is what we're studying is actually called ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. Yes, welcome to Wednesday nights. We, we, we are going to be doing some heavy lifting, maybe. Uh, so here's what ecclesiology is. And I just for I just googled that that term to see what 
Google would give me. It's theology as applied to the nature and the structure of the Christian church. I thought that was pretty good. Basically, it's what does the Bible say about the church? Um, and last Sunday night, we introduced ourselves to a new word, potentially. Maybe you've, you've heard it before. And that was church polity. Church polity. P-O-L-I-T-Y. So that's a part of the study of the church or ecclesiology. So what's polity? Well, polity says this is how the church is governed, how it decides what it is to uh, do or not do, how it is to be structured. How it is to be governed is probably the best, the best uh, definition for it. Now, we gave three options. I can't go through the options again that are the historical options of church polity or church government or church rule. I give somebody a free cup of coffee if they can name all three. It just finished brewing. Come on. Teamwork here. We could do it too. Congregationalism. Congregationalism. That's the easy one to remember. That's what we are. Presbyterianism. That's probably more a little. That's also probably a pretty easy one. There's a Presbyterian church down the road. And there's another one that's kind of hard to say. Episcopalianism. We could, yeah. So Episcopalianism, uh, let me just quickly, has the structure is governed by a head bishop. Okay? Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism is, is ruled by one main bishop, the, the Pope. Presbyterianism is ruled by a group of elder men or elders who qualify 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. They are the ones who rule over the church or govern over the church. Congregationalism, the third option, is that the church is ruled or governed by the congregation, the church. Um, And last week we made a case for congregational polity, uh, that the church, which is the congregation of believers, is the final earthly authority within the body. Or the final court of appeals. And specifically in the matters of doctrine and discipline or discipleship. Um, The big push that I made last week that I really wanted us to understand is that the Bible teaches that the members of a church have a responsibility of protecting the preaching and teaching of God's word and also of guarding the membership, who is and isn't in the church, and also the, the, the care of the members within the church. Discipleship or discipline can go either way. All right, so that catches us up to what we did last week. But I want you, if, you're, if, if you didn't, weren't here this last Sunday evening, go listen to that on the website, Spotify, wherever you find it, and, 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 and listen to that so you kind of catch the parts that we didn't get to. So here's where it gets – got to get into it a little bit. How does a congregation rule? So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. How does a congregation rule? Well, th- there's one word to really make that statement or answer that question, and it's the majority. The congregation – Rules or governs by the majority. Now that's a scary thing. 
that can be a scary thing. And uh, we'll, we, we touched on why that would be a scary thing last week. But we'll look at it again. 2 Corinthians chapter... Did I say 6? I meant to. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul is addressing an incident within the church at Corinth. We're not sure if it has to do with the same guy from 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6 or not that we looked at last week. But there's been someone whom they have disciplined, uh, but we want, to, we want to look and see how they did it, how they made that ruling. Verse 5, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That word is probably translated differently in different English translations, but that word is by the most or the major portion. Um, so the majority have come together and said, we must discipline whoever this character is. Now, in the same sense, if... The, if Ozark's Bible Church, by a majority, thinks that what I preach and teach is heresy, then by the majority, you are obligated to either correct and or remove me from the pulpit. That's your responsibility. And we talked about that last week, uh, especially in Galatians 1 and um, Ephesians 4. So then we get to the idea of the dangers. We talked about this last week. Um, and this is all sort of introduction. We got to the point of dangers of congregational rule or majority rule. Um, because what's a majority? It's 50% plus one. That's it, right? But churches have – churches can in wisdom and, or prudence uh, determine in their constitution or even vote by vote uh, – if they want to increase that. So most drastic or very important measures, it's usually not wise to just go by 50% plus one, but maybe uh, a supermajority, whether it be two-thirds or three-quarters or 90%, that's typically up to the church and how they phrase it in their constitution. That's neither here nor there, but just to understand that just because we say majority doesn't mean it's 50% plus one. Technically, that's the least, could be more. The three dangers of, of congregationalism, of congregation rule. Number one, just as this is more of a reminder and going to help lead us into where we're going tonight. Arrogance. Majority rule does not equal we run this place or we make all the decisions or we're the winning team because we won the majority vote. It's not a game. It's a responsibility. Number one, arrogance. Number two, ignorance. Majority rule or majority a majority vote does not mean that you're doing God's will. Just because the, there's 50% plus one or whatever the case may be doesn't mean that what you have voted for please God. Majority is not infallible. Um, the third thing is controlling. Everything from who the pastor is to who turned the lights off has to be voted on. That, again, is another danger of 
uh, congregationalism. So here's where we get. Does the Bible give instruction or attention to how to hedge and protect against those dangers? Yes. And it's God giving to the church elders. E-L-D-E-R-S. That is the hedge or the protection that God gives to the church in order to protect them from these these failures of the majority. And there's more. You could list more. So you're thinking, okay, what's an elder? We don't have any elders. Well, you could interchange that word for overseer or bishop or pastor or even leader as addressed in Hebrews 13. Look at Acts 14. Acts 14. Verse 23. This is a passage I wanted to look at last Sunday morning, but didn't get around to it. So Peter has just been stoned. Excuse me. Paul has just been stoned. They drag drag him out thinking he was dead. He gets up and says, come on, let's go to the next town. Bold bold and fearless. But then after he goes and tells tells the disciples... Um, that they must enter in the kingdom of God through many tribulations. He turns to them in verse 23 and says, And when they had appointed elders for for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they appoint elders in every church with prayer and fasting, committing them to the Lord in whom they have believed. This is... Not a one-time thing or one-time event. So the New Testament pattern is to appoint people or leaders over congregations. Now, for the rest of our time, we're going to look at a doctrine of eldership or leadership within the church. So y'all know... The pastoral epistles. We're going to spend a lot of time in the pastoral epistles. So let's turn to uh, Titus. Let's start in Titus. And Brother Dan's kind of given us a leg up on this if you've been in Sunday school the class for the last few weeks because he's talked about these things already. God gives the church elders for the sake of order. Order. Titus verse 1, chapter 1, I'm sorry, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Now keep in mind, this is in in the context of the the church or the congregation having final appeal or rule over earthly matters. I should say earthly rule. Okay, we're going to be connecting dots here. Paul, this is a letter from Paul to Titus, and look what he says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into what? Order. And appoint elders in every town as I direct you. So order and elders go hand in hand. But then Paul says, not just anybody can do this. 
And then he goes from verse 6 on through 9, giving us the, 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 uh, sorry, the qualifications for who they can appoint as an elder. Now, as I said, we went through this in Sunday school a few weeks back. But look at verse 7. Because I, I want you to see a word in there. And yours might say it a little bit different. But verse 7 says, For an overseer or bishop... Raise your hand if your Bible says overseer. Raise your hand if your Bible says bishop. Raise your hand if your Bible says something else. Okay. So, he says... Now, look here. Look at me. Paul says, go and appoint elders. And then as he's giving the qualifications of the elders, he says in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So what did he just do? He just said that an elder is an overseer or a bishop, depending on what your translation is. Okay? They're the same thing. Okay? Now go to... uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1. The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or bishop. Same word that we got in, in Titus verse Titus chapter 1 verse 7 so this is the qualifications for a bishop an overseer or an elder okay for the sake of my words I'm just going to say overseer even though the KJV says bishop it's, the, it's just it's just English translation overseer is the literal word that it means like oversee okay? I'm assuming the word bishop probably comes from Latin, which we're going to talk a little bit about here in a little bit. So an overseer, the qualifications of an overseer, 1 Timothy chapter 3, are the same qualifications for an elder in Titus 1 because it's the same office. You all understand? Same thing. Same thing. But look at verse verse 4. I'm just going to give a peek here. He must manage his own household well. That's a qualification of a bishop or an overseer. I said I wasn't going to say that one. Of an overseer or an elder. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. (laughs) Verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage or rule his own household, how will he care for God's church? So, I just, I've just given you, without telling you, two responsibilities of an overseer or an elder. Right there in verse 5 is to manage or to rule, to steward. I didn't know what the word steward meant for a long time. I'm, I've had a horrible vocabulary my whole life. It's okay to say that you don't understand the definition of some English words. If you're a steward, you're a manager. That means, does the manager own, does the manager of Sonic own Sonic? No, No, but what does he do? He cares for it in the place of who? The, The owner. 
The owner has said, here is my business, run it for me. That's what a steward is. That's what a manager is. That's the word that's being used in verse 5 of chapter 3 in 1 Timothy. So an elder, an overseer, is to manage, steward, or rule the church. Look down at verse 15. Well, we'll start at 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. He's like, I'm telling you this because I need you to manage this place. I need you to oversee and um, steward, which I, I said the word oversee, but that comes that's another responsibility that's very close and similar to the idea of manage and to steward and to rule is to oversee. The literal word oversee. Um, if we were to translate it into the way that we use language, we would say one that goes and checks in on or looks after. You know, you're like, hey, will you look after the kids for me this evening? You're putting someone in place to watch over and to exercise authority over your kids. So these are responsibilities that the elder or the the overseer has for the sake of the church. Um, If you look at chapter 5, look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Let's read that again. Let the elders who rule well or manage or steward well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there, we're not going to get into this today, but I just want to put this in your mind for next Wednesday. There is the idea of an elder who preaches and teaches and an elder who doesn't. Just a thought, something to think about. We'll come back to that next Wednesday. Um, but also understand that when someone says, I'm a preacher, they're not actually telling you anything biblical. biblical. There's no office of preacher. It's not there. It's the responsibility of a pastor. I'm getting ahead of myself because I haven't used the word pastor yet. So now let's think about the word pastor because most of us think of leaders of the church as the pastor. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to turn to Acts 20. This is why I need a chalkboard. Acts 20. There's two passages I'm going to show you. Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5. And this is what I'm going to show you. Look at me for a second. This is what I'm going to show you. That that an elder is an overseer, which we've already established, is a pastor. An elder is an overseer, is a pastor. All major denominations that haven't gone, we'll say woke. (laughs) Well, it's just the terminology these days, huh? Acknowledge that there is 
that acknowledge that an overseer is an elder, is a pastor. Three words of saying the same office. Acts 20 shows us this. Look at verse 17. Now when Miletus, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, that'd be Paul, and called the elders of the church to come to him. And they came to him and he said, then he goes through this whole thing. He's going to be leaving. He's going to uh, Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. It's a sad moment. And then go all the way back, or go all the way forward to verse 26. He's giving them a final charge as the elders of the church of Ephesus. Now we know that there's a church in Ephesus because Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Um, I won't go any further with that. Okay, verse 26. Therefore I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. That's the same word from 1 Timothy chapter 3. To care for the church. The word care there, not care bear, care there. The word care there is the word shepherd. Not you, but a shepherd of sheep. Uh, The word is P-O-I-M-A-I-N-O. So who is he speaking to? He's speaking to elders at Ephesus. And what does he say that God has given them? Oversight. And how are they to how are they to work that oversight out? In shepherding the church of God. Now, one more connection. Turn to where is it? Ephesians four. What I want you to understand is that there in the New Testament in the, the three translations I lean to the most, the ESV, the uh, King James, and the New American Standard, none of them use the word pastor in the New Testament. There's one time it's used in the Old, but not like we would use it. Not once in the KJV, the ESV, or the NASB is the word pastor found in the New Testament. Now, where did we get the word pastor Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the er, and he gave the apostles. So this is gifts that Christ has given the church. And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds. Who's does anyone not say shepherds? What else does it say? Pastors. Pastors. What you got New King James, right? Yeah. Okay, that's the only one that I could find that had to actually that. But here's where I want you to understand where the word pastor comes from. Pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. Okay? Um, Past, it's like connected to feeding, you know, feeding a flock. You ever had pasta? It's P-A-S, it's talking about feeding. It's all connected. But the word pastor in Latin is just... How you say shepherd. 
Okay? So when most English translators, they didn't say we're going to use the Latin word pastor. We're going to use the word it actually means, which is shepherds. So all we've done as English-speaking people is say, well, we kind of like the word pastor in Latin, and instead of saying anything else in English, we're just going to use the Latin word, pastor. Okay? Am I losing you? All I want you to see is that when the Bible speaks of a pastor, it actually is speaking of a shepherd. Okay? So when we see in Acts 20, we see Paul speaking to elders, and he says that they've been given oversight— as an overseer, and they're to work that out in their shepherding or their pastoring the flock of God. Okay? Three things, one office. One more time. First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter five verse one. So I exhort the elders among you. Okay, there's the first word. Press. Um, I won't say the Greek, but just elders. So I exhort the elders among you. There's the first one. As a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. The second one, shepherd. Or pastor the flock of God that is among you. Third one, exercising oversight. All three, again, in this in two verses. The, you're an elder who has oversight and you're shepherding or pastoring the flock of God. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock, the sheep, the church. An, uh, an elder is an overseer, is a shepherd, or a pastor. I don't think I can hit that hammer anymore. <laughs> Got it? But it's important because we live in a culture where we live in a time where we see, we only see it typically in our area, see a pastor. And so when we read a passage that says something about an overseer or a bishop or an elder, we think, well, that doesn't, that, that's an odd thing. That doesn't really pertain to us because we don't have bishops or elders. You do. You do. Um, the other odd thing, and this is going to be what we'll look at down the road a little bit. The other odd thing about our area and our time is that in every instant in the New Testament, when they speak of elders or overseers, it's always in the plural. There's always multiple. It never, it never acknowledges that there should be one overall, but it's typically in the plural form, that there are a group of qualified men shepherding the flock, exercising Oversight. We'll look more about that in the future, but just know that that is the typical. Actually, that is it's only listed in the plural unless it's making an example of what an elder is or something of that nature. Um, okay. God has called, gifted, 
and providentially placed men to care for his church, his sheep, to guard his bride. Here's another one. To minister. And you, you're not going to find that word in the Bible. Minister. What is it? Well, it's another Latin word. What does it stand for? To serve. A servant. A minister is the Latin way of calling someone a servant. Actually, minister, a small servant. And what is that in comparison to? The big servant. The mass. You know Spanish. Mas, right? means big. Well, that's the same as Latin. Mas, master, master. So the minister is the mini servant in comparison to the master. Okay? So we can throw that term out there. What's a minister? It's it's someone who's a pastor, an overseer, an elder, a servant to the Lord. Um, but that word can be used in many different ways. But that's what the pastor, elder, overseer is to do, is to minister to or serve the church that has put God has put in his care. So how does this guard kind of come back full circle? How does this guard a congregation against the dangers of congregationalism? How does it guard the church against the dangers of congregationalism? Um, the thing that solves all those problems are found in one word. Submission. Submission. Submission to the authority and the rule of the elder. Now, you're thinking, I thought you said that the church, the congregation, is the final rule of the church. That they're the ones that make all the decisions. Yes. But, at the same time, God has given men to lead. So when a church says, you are our minister, our pastor, we have just transferred, not gotten rid of, the authority that we had to hire you. We we submit ourselves to your leadership. And if that leader gets out of line, they still have the authority... To do what they need to do. Now, take a step back and think about this in the context of Israel. We've said multiple times throughout the last few weeks that the Bible, the Lord Jesus, goes at the leaders of Israel and says, You've been bad leaders. You have harmed my people. But what else does God do? He then points at Israel, the people, and says, And I'm going to judge you too. He doesn't just say, bad leaders, poor Israel. He says, bad leaders, bad Israel. Bad leaders, bad followers. Right? Do you understand? God always has people leading his people. And Israel, back in the Old Testament, said, we don't want you to lead us. We want a man to lead us. And that, God warned them and said, okay, beware what you wish for. Okay, so 
he's not remo- by giving them leaders, he's not removing the responsibility of the congregation. And we know this from Ephesians 4, right? Because Ephesians 4, Paul charges Timothy and all other elders and pastors to preach the word of God in season and out of season. But then he says to he says to Timothy right after that, he says to them, but there will be people not Ephesians, Second Timothy, Second Timothy, sorry. For time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. What will they do? They will run it out. They'll run out the sound teacher. <coughs> but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Who's running the place? Well, in this situation, the people were. They're like, we don't want sound doctrine. We want people to come and tell us how good how good we are, or talk about uh, uh, myths and fables. And so both are culpable. When a congregation submits to godly eldership, arrogance can be avoided. In the majority, I'm going back to the majority. Because submission is humility to be led. The problem with ignorance, and this is what we'll talk about more next week, the whole point of the elder, overseer, pastor, is to feed the flock, to teach them the word of God. When Peter is on the, on the beach with Jesus after his resurrection, and Jesus tells Peter, do you lo- or asks Peter, do you love me? He says, yes. What did he say to him? Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Pastor, shepherd was the word he used in Greek. My sheep. Okay, and so the the elder overseer pastor is to inform any ignorance of the congregation so that they're an informed majority based on the word of God. And then, of course, the controlling aspect. When a congregation submits, as Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders. When they trust their elders, they're entrusting their care to someone who is submitting to the master, the good shepherd, the head shepherd. Okay? So, just, just to conclude, I'm going to read one passage, and then I want to talk just for two minutes about order authority and submission look at ephesians chapter four we read it when we started we read it when we started now i want you to I want you to see something, and if if I don't think the King James indents or makes any distinguish mark for um, an Old Testament quote, but in in Ephesians four verse eight is the start of a 
uh, Old Testament quote, and then verse 9 is uh, parentheses. And so um, verse 9 sort of cuts off the flow. So I'm not going to read verse 9. It's not that it's not connected to the passage. It's just a parenthetical thought, which means – so, okay, I – I have conversations with Sylvia all the time, and she throws throws in parenthetical thoughts, and I have to he- connect. Okay, what she just said in the middle of our conversation has meaning, but not necessarily to actually what we're talking about in the context. Par- a parentheses, parenthetical thought means it has meaning, but it might not be actually in the context. All that saying, I'm not going to read verse 9 because it's kind of confusing. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 11. What did he give? Verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Why did he give these gifts? Why did he give these men, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry? Now, if you've got some translations put a parenthesis or put a comma after uh, saints, uh, that's a controversial comma. Um, I take that verse as to say that the shepherd and teacher is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But if you've got a comma there you see that shepherd and teachers are to equip the saints and shepherd or teachers are for the work of ministry. That's a discussion we can have at another time. But I tend to take it that the shepherd and the teacher, the shepherd teacher is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. You understand there's a, there's a difference with the comma there. But I, I'm convinced that I'm here to equip you to serve. That's the point. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That is the key to an elder, overseer, pastor. To shepherd and teach for the sake of building you up so that you can be a minister yourself, a servant. That's what the word ministry is, in service. Okay, what is, why is all this important? And this is how we'll close. Why is all of this important? Because God is a God of order, not chaos, not confusion. Genesis 1.1 says that the, when, when God created the earth, In the beginning, it was formless and void. The word formless means it was out of order. There was no structure. It was chaotic. And it was not good until God made order in his creation. And how did he create order in his creation? His word. And so what but but so we can we can actually make use a word above that? His authoritative word. His word made order happen, right? So 
if we are to be orderly, it has to be done by his authoritative word. So we as a church, if we're to do church biblically, in order, not chaos, but structured as he has called it, and that's the there is no there is no fulfilling of our calling apart from being in order of how God has ordered us as a church. That's why all this is important. We have to be biblical. We have to submit as a church to the authoritative word. But ultimately, we understand that the authoritative word made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we move this idea of order and authority in his word not just to the to the church, but you're